everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to The Stand and the works of Stephen King. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of The Circle Opens can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Circle Opens. Happy 2021. I am so happy to be back talking to you guys again on a weekly basis, and I hope that you are excited as I am to start diving into Stephen King's short stories and novellas. Before we jump into the book reviews, I thought I would do a quick review of episode two of The Stand from CBS All Access. The episode was titled Pocket Savior, which of course is Larry Underwood's album title. I was going to include my review for episode three, Blank Page. However, I have not yet seen it. Between the end of the work week with year-end accounting duties at work and the new year and my beloved Buckeyes having played in the Sugar Bowl last night and winning decisively against the Clemson Tigers, I have just not had the time to do it yet. And my husband has been watching the show with me. So I have to wait for a time when we both can sit down and watch it together. I will say that one of the complaints of the new series is the the structure, the nonlinear timeline. And I know that it's been confusing for a lot of people. I think even, you know, constant readers such as ourselves, some of us might, you know, we're on top of it, but some of us are having difficulty with it as well. And I was eager to get the opinion of somebody who has never read the book and never seen the 94 series. That would be my husband. (laughs) I don't think he's ever read a King book in his life, and I'm hoping to change that this year. However, he did. He had some confusion, especially in the first episode, jumping between a gun quit and Boulder and the timeline, especially the end uh, when Harold came into contact with a pregnant Franny and Stu. He had a lot of questions about where we were in the timeline, how the timeline worked, and that carried over into the second episode. And I had to keep saying, okay, well, now we're back in New York five months earlier. Okay, now we're back in Boulder. So I think it would have been helpful. Maybe the editing was a bit smoother for the timeline, or maybe if they gave us little, for those who've watched the X-Files, anytime uh, Scully and Mulder would go someplace new. They would always put at the bottom left-hand side of the screen where they were. So I thought maybe that would have been helpful. But at this point, I'm not sure that there's really anything we can do about it, but just get through it. (laughs) Personally, I've had no real issue with it. I think because I've read the book so many times that I kind of can recognize what is present day and what is a flashback. So with that being said, in regards to Blank Page, I do plan on watching that tonight, Saturday the 2nd, and I'm hoping to have a special review episode for you guys, at least by Monday, giving you my thoughts on Blank Page. I have heard that uh, it is very good. A lot of people have told me that it was their favorite episode so far, so I'm excited to see it. And I have also asked people to let me know what they're thinking, what their thoughts are on the new series uh, per episode or just the series in general so far. I have gotten some emails, some really good emails from listeners, and I wanted to read those in this episode, but with the review of Pocket Savior and then my review of Jerusalem's Lot, since Jerusalem's Lot is one of the longer, quote unquote, longer uh, short stories in Night Shift, it's going to take me a bit to get through it. So I've decided that I'm going to read those emails in the special review episode of Blank Page. So if you do want to let me know what you guys are thinking of the series so far, drop me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Don't worry about spoiling me on episode three. Don't, I don't, I'm not worried about that whatsoever. So just go ahead and shoot me your thoughts on either the episodes or just everything in general. And I would love to hear what you guys have to say. Just, you know, keep it clean-ish and I will be able to read it on the next episode. So I'm going to be talking about Pocket Savior. I will try to keep this review 
fairly brief, not not as long as the episode review of The End. Obviously, I had a guest, Sean, from the What Does It Matter podcast with me, so obviously we could talk for a bit about the episode. Um, but because I'm also reviewing Jerusalem's Lot in this episode, I'm going to try not to ramble on too long about Pocket Safe here. Obviously, there will be spoilers. So if you've not yet seen the episode, please uh, jump forward quite a bit. I will try to remember to put the timestamps in the episode description so you know exactly where you need to go to get past this episode. Or you could just pause the podcast and go watch the episode and come back. I am going to read the synopsis from Wikipedia of Pocket Savior. It says Larry Underwood is a musician who is on his way to being a star when Captain Tripps hits, killing his mother. In a now largely abandoned New York City, he meets Rita Blakemore and starts a relationship with her. They decide to leave and are attacked by stalkers and escape into the sewers before eventually reaching the outskirts of the city. Whilst traveling, Rita commits suicide by overdosing on pills. Criminal Lloyd Henry is arrested after a botched robbery and ends up trapped in prison when Captain Tripps takes over. Growing weaker and becoming delusional, he is visited by Randall Flagg, who promises to release him on the condition that he become his right-hand man. Months later, Larry arrives in Boulder alongside Nadine Cross and a child named Joe. Larry discovers that Mother Abigail, the leader of the commune, has been looking for people to lead and wants him to be one of the leaders alongside Stu and Ray Brentner. Nadine begins to have visions of Flag beckoning to her. So really quick, I'm just going to talk about the things that I enjoyed and touch on some of the things that I don't want to say that I didn't enjoy, but maybe have been disappointing. First things first, I really enjoyed uh, Heather Graham as Rita Blakemore. I thought she did a great job with the character. In the book, Rita is very clingy and needy and very insecure and definitely needs Larry there to take care of her. She's very dependent on him. I thought that I preferred Heather Graham's portrayal. And I don't like calling somebody who is trying to struggle, well, trying to struggle, but struggling to survive in a post-apocalyptic world annoying. But Rita did have some annoying moments. Uh, Larry had some of his very jerky moments. And I thought Heather Graham, she still maintained some of Rita's unbalanced demeanor while still managing to be sympathetic. I truly did enjoy her scenes with Larry, played by Giovanna Depot. They had really nice chemistry together. The love scene was very tasteful. Um, so, yeah, I think that Rita's character was portrayed very close to the book, but also improving on that characterization as well. In the book, I think that it's still a little ambiguous as to whether or not Rita purposely overdosed on her pills or if it was an accident. And Pocket Savior left no doubt. She did it on purpose. And you can see some of that emotion during her last scene with Larry when they're outside of the tent. And Rita starts to talk about how stupid it is that they're alive when so many people have died. And you can just tell she keeps her tone kind of light, kind of conversational, but you can tell that she's in pain and she doesn't think that she can handle surviving in this new world. And she makes the conscious decision to kill herself. So I thought it was handled really well. Um, and I'm eager to see how that affects Larry, because obviously Rita's death in the book triggers a lot of Larry's internal warring with himself about becoming a better man. I thought Giovanna Depot was wonderful as Larry. I was very protective of this character because he is my favorite character in the book. I think his arc is the most interesting out of the other characters, and I think that he grows the most as a character. And I thought Adipo's portrayal of him was just spot on. He really nailed those layers that Larry has the selfishness, the narcissism. When Wayne Stuckey is dying in the rain of Captain Tripps outside of his car, Larry is just looking for the cocaine. And that is very much Larry Underwood when he's arguing with Rita in the sewers because she's scared and she wants to go back up to the street. He yells at her that he's not going with her and he's not going to die up there with her. And he leaves her. So I think that they really nailed the Larry of the earlier moments in the book, but also showing that he is a good person underneath all of that. In the book, obviously, his mother dies in the hospital and he leaves her there. I mean, what else can he do? 
But in the series, he takes her home so she can die in her own bed. And I think that shows a lot of who Larry really is underneath all of his issues. So I thought that they handled Larry really well in Pocket Savior, and I'm really excited to see more of his journey. I was really disappointed that there was no Lucy Swan because Lucy is, while she's not the catalyst for Larry becoming a better person, she is integral to his character development. And I'm hoping that she does show up eventually in Boulder if she's not going to be that third party traveler with Nadine and Larry. But I'll be really upset if she's not in the series at all, because I think she has an important role to play for Larry, especially at the end of the book. I won't spoil, you know, her situation, but I do think that they need Lucy Swan in some capacity in this series. But I'm going to hold off until the series is over to complain about it (laughs) if she's not there. Something else I was a little disappointed in was Nadine. Nadine is such a tragic character in my head. I think she's also one of the more fascinating characters in the book. I'm a little salty still that her hair is not black. And I know that the appearance is not the end-all be-all of a character. But I thought Nadine's black hair slowly turning white throughout the book, showing how Flag affects her both mentally and physically when he comes to her is just maybe it's a little on the nose, but I thought it's one of the more fascinating aspects of who Nadine is and how flag affects people. And Amber Heard's hair is just blonde. So I think that loses some of her complexity. And honestly, I'm still not really sure how I feel about Amber Heard's characterization of Nadine. In Pocket Savior, she just felt very passive and quiet We already saw in Pocket Savior that she has one of Flag's stones. So I think that kind of takes away that surprise that she is being visited by Flag and lured to the West by him, being used by him. Uh, We immediately see it. So we know that Flag has already touched her. And that's not to say Nadine is some fiery, you know, free spirit in the book, but she certainly speaks up. She's a strong character. Her introduction to Mother Abigail was one of my favorite sequences in the book, and we didn't get that, at least not yet. I think she does have a focal. She is one of the focal points in episode three, I believe. So maybe we'll see something a little bit more with Amber Heard and Nadine. So I'm going to hold off on being really judgy about how I feel about Nadine right now until I see more of her character. I really, really enjoyed Nat Wolf as Lloyd the baby face killer. And I think Nat Wolf embodies that really well, at least physically. I did enjoy his smarminess. Uh, his scene with Poke in the, in the gas station for the robbery was spot on. Oh, but it was very gory. Not that I, I don't mind it, but Poke's face getting half of it getting shot off. That poor woman getting her head blown off. It was just, you had to show what terrible people Lloyd and Poke were. Just how how Lloyd ended up in prison on death row, probably on death row because he hadn't yet gone to trial, but there had to be very little sympathy for Lloyd. And I thought Nat Wolf pulled it off really well. You just wanted to punch him in the face. His scenes in the prison with the rat and then eyeing Trask's leg, ugh, just knowing what's coming. And then I did. I thought that the scene with Lloyd and Flag was really well done. Very, it stuck to the book really well. Alexander Skarsgård, we've only seen bits and pieces of him. And he simply just, he has that charisma and he has that magnetism that I think Flag needs to be a convincing leader. You can see why people flock to him. Uh, Obviously, he's very, very handsome, but it goes beyond that. He has to have a presence. And I think Alexander Skarsgård definitely has a presence when he's on screen. He just has that look about him. So I enjoyed those two together. They had a lot of great chemistry. And I think that comes from them knowing each other for quite some time in real life. I think they've acted a couple times together in movies. So that was really well done. I was happy to see that. I'm happy to see more of Lloyd. I I really like this characterization of Lloyd quite a bit. I'm excited to see him when he's in Vegas. We do get a glimpse at Nick Andros, played by Henry Zaga, when Larry is going to meet Mother Abigail. Nick is my second favorite character in the book, so I'm very eager to see his story. And Tom Cullen, finally, bring me some Tom. I'm really, I I keep saying I'm excited, but I'm eager. I'm anticipating this particular storyline quite a bit. And Ray Bretner, um, I know, I'm not really sure yet. I had no problem with them changing gender from Ralph to Ray. I think the actress is a strong actress. She does, 
even in the small moment we saw her, she has a presence about her too. So seeing that relationship between Ray and Mother Abigail and Nick is something that is, I think, very integral to the book. So I'm excited. Again, that word excited. You guys should have a drinking game for every time I say the word excited. So <laughs> I guess I'm really eager to see where they're going with that as well. It's, that's the problem with this like jumping timeline is we're going forward to see these characters that we know and love, but we haven't seen their backstory yet. We haven't seen how they got there and I have to kind of hold back my discussion of that until I see how the show creates and develops their backstory, kind of like how we saw with Fran and Stu and Larry now. My biggest disappointment with Pocket Savior is the switching of the Lincoln Tunnel to the sewer. I don't think that the sewer really took away anything. It did not ruin the series or the episode for me. But I think that the Lincoln Tunnel is just an iconic chapter in the book. It's the first chapter of any horror novel that I read at that age that literally scared me, that I had to put the book down and kind of be like, oh, that's creepy. I don't like it. <laughs> and I'm just, I don't really know. I mean, the sewer sequence, to be honest, it was fine. It had creepy moments. I do have a thing about being in water and not knowing what's swimming around beneath me or knowing what's under there, especially when you're in a dank, nasty sewer. His phone fell in the water, and then he's in the complete darkness without Rita, without company, hearing the rats and hearing things. They did that quite well, to the point where Larry was starting to hallucinate and saw his mother's body floating down the water before the rats started coming out of her mouth, which was nasty. <laughs> and I thought they did that really well. But it's just there was something about the Lincoln Tunnel having that's his way to freedom. And the sewer, he's just hiding from these crazy stalker men who want to kill him and take Rita for nefarious purposes. So he's just trying to not die. In the book, Lincoln Tunnel, there are other ways to get out of the city, but they're so far. He, You know, the Lincoln Tunnel is his one way out of New York. If he can get through there, he's free. And he has such trouble. There's dead bodies everywhere. There's dead soldiers everywhere. He's hearing noises. He's terrified. He only has his lighter for, you know, any kind of light. And then, of course, Rita follows and he shoots at her and is very dramatic, very eerie. And I just think that kind of atmosphere is lost with what they did in the series. Larry being in the sewer was fine. It was scary. But it's just not the same. I will say, though, that the sewer sequence did, I felt like it was a little bit of a shout out to it and Dairy Maine and Pennywise. I'm sure I'm not the only one who thought that. And as soon as his mother came floating down the water, I looked at my husband and I was just, I said, you know, that's Pennywise, right? <laughs> Pennywise, the dancing clown, has survived Captain Trips and moved to New York. But I think uh, whether that was a conscious homage to it or not, I thought it was really well done. And uh, again, it didn't ruin the episode for me, but there was a lot of disappointment because the Lincoln Tunnel is one of my absolutely favorite parts of the book. So all in all, I thought this was a pretty solid episode. I'm glad we finally got to see Larry and we got to see Lloyd and things are starting to happen. I've been pretty pleased with the series so far. And I, again, I would love to hear from you guys. The circle closes at gmail.com. If you want to shoot me an email, it can be a short two sentence email. Or if you want to give me thoughts on every episode, feel free to do that. Hopefully I will have a new episode for you guys on Monday with my review of Blank Page. And so now I think it's time to get back into reading Stephen King and talking about his work. If you are a listener who has been with me from the beginning, going through a chapter by chapter review of The Stand, all 78 chapters, welcome back. Thank you so much for continuing on this journey with me. I'm really excited to do this. If you are a new listener who's here just to hear my thoughts on the short stories and novellas from King, welcome to the podcast. And I will say full disclosure that I am reading a summary of each story and I will be discussing each story in depth or as in depth as I can get, depending on how short the stories are. So yes, there will be spoilers for these stories. If you have not yet read them, I recommend again, pausing the podcast, picking up Night Shift, and at least reading the first story, Jerusalem's Lot, before listening ahead. 
So instead of a chapter by chapter review, we are now in a story by story review. And we are starting this new journey with Night Shift, the 1978 collection of short stories. The first is Jerusalem's Lot. This story has ties to Salem's Lot from 1975 and One for the Road, which is another short story featured in Night Shift that obviously we will get to in time. Apparently, King wrote Jerusalem's Lot in 1967 for a college course. So the mythos of Salem's Lot had already been created and there for King to build upon. And while Jerusalem's Lot is the focal setting for Salem's Lot and obviously Jerusalem's Lot, it's also the town is also mentioned in The Shining, The Dead Zone, The Body, Pet Cemetery, Dolores Claiborne, Dreamcatcher, The Dark Tower, Wolves of Kala, The Dark Tower, Song of Susanna, The Dark Tower 7, The Dark Tower, Dr. Sleep, Revival, and The Institute. So this town has a lot of history in King's works. It is also briefly seen in an episode of season one of Castle Rock, and it is a central setting in season two. So let's get on to the summary of Jerusalem's Lot. Jerusalem's Lot is set in the fictional town of Preacher's Corners in Cumberland County, Maine in 1850. It's told mostly through letters addressed to a man named Bones from Charles Boone, as well as some glimpses into the pocket journal of Boone's friend and companion, Calvin McCann. The very first letter to Bones from Boone is dated October 2nd, 1850. He seems to be in good spirits, very excited to be at his ancestral home of Chapelwaite. We learn a little about Bones himself from this letter, who has taken to Florida to recover from miasma, or bad air, that has affected his lungs. Boone sympathizes with Bones' dilemma, an ailing abolitionist, healed by the sunny climes of a slave-struck Florida. Boone asks Bones to take care of himself down south before he describes chapel weight to his friend. As a quick little side note that the idea of leaving home to head south in order to heal physical ailments is very reminiscent in my head of Edgar Fremantle and Duma Key, who does something very similar. Back to the story. <laughs> According to Boone, he describes the home in his letter this way. It says, It sits atop a huge and jutting point of land, perhaps three miles north of Falmouth, and nine miles north of Portland. Behind it are some four acres of grounds, gone back to the wild in the most formidable manner imaginable. Junipers, scrub vines, bushes, and various forms of creeper climb wildly over the picturesque stone walls that separate the estate from the town domain. Awful imitations of Greek statuary peer blindly through the rack from atop various hillocks. They seem, in most cases, about to lunge at the passerby. There is an odd little summer house which has been nearly buried in scarlet sumac and a grotesque sundial in the midst of what must once have been a garden. It adds the final lunatic touch. But the view from the parlor more than excuses this. I command a dizzying view of the rocks at the foot of Chapelweight Head and the Atlantic itself. A huge bellied bay window looks out on this, and a huge toad-like secretary stands beside it. It will do nicely for the start of that novel, which I have talked of so long and no doubt tiresomely. His friend Calvin has accompanied Charles to Chapelweight and is described as practical, silent, and dependable. There are plans to have deliveries made by the nearby town and perhaps a company of cleaning women to dust the place out. The next letter on October 6th is where we first learn of some apprehension the townspeople have about Calvin and Charles living in Chapelweight. Calvin returns from a trip from town to tell Charles that the people think he's mad. Calvin says, what was said, sir, was that anyone who would live in Chapelweight must either be a lunatic or run the risk of becoming one. Of course, Charles is confused by this because the house seems perfectly fine to him. The man who said as much to Calvin was named Thompson, who was set to deliver wood to Chapelweight. He agreed, but informed Calvin that his sons would deliver the wood in the daytime along the sea road. Considering the history of Charles's family, he can't really blame the locals for being wary and losing themselves in scandal and myth. Charles's cousin Stephen, the owner of the house before Charles, had fallen to his death almost from his front porch. 
So in Charles's mind, gossip is fair game. Charles goes on to describe a bit more of the house, including the scurrying and scuttering he hears behind the walls, assuming it's rats, although he and Calvin cannot find any holes or droppings to confirm. There are portraits of his family within the house as well, his uncle Henry and Aunt Judith. The others he doesn't quite recognize, although he imagines one may be his grandfather, Robert Boone. His cousin Stephen's family is unknown to Charles due to a family fallout. Charles seems pretty pleased with Chapelwaite and leaves the letter with kind regards to Bones. The next letter that Boone writes is dated October 16th and is addressed to a man named Richard, a friend of his. Boone asks Richard if he can contact a historian that they had met at a fundraising dinner and see if the man knows anything, fact, rumors, or folklore about a small deserted village near Chapelwaite called Jerusalem's Lot. On the same day, Charles writes Bones again to tell him about his encounter with Mrs. Cloris, a woman who arrived in the company of other young ladies to dust and clean the home. They were all fairly nervous being there. When Charles approached Mrs. Cloris to ask about it, she was pretty blunt. She tells him they don't like the house, and I don't like the house, sir, because it has always been a bad house. That's not to say that the residents were bad. She once cleaned for Charles's uncle Randolph Boone and his wife before they disappeared in 1816. She also cleaned for Charles's cousin Stephen, who was a fine man and kind, but the house was bad and had always been. She continues, The house was built in unhappiness, has been lived in with unhappiness. There's been blood spilt on its floors, parentheses, as you may or may not know, Bones, my Uncle Randolph was involved in an accident on the cellar stairs, which took the life of his daughter Marcella. He then took his own life in a fit of remorse. The incident is related in one of Stephen's letters to me on the sad occasion of his dead sister's birthday, end parentheses. Mrs. Cloris also says, there has been disappearance, an accident. I have worked here, Mr. Boone, and I am neither blind nor deaf. I've heard awful sounds in the walls, sir, awful sounds, thumpings and crashings, and once a strange wailing that was half laughter. It fair made my blood curdle. It's a dark place, sir. Ghosts there may be, but it's not ghosts in the walls. It's not ghosts that wail and blubber like the damned and crash and blunder away in the darkness. Some die not, she whispered. Some live in the twilight shadows between to serve him. That night, Calvin approaches Charles and leads him to the study, where he heard scratches in the walls as though something were desperate to climb out and get him. Calvin describes it as a shuffling sound, like whatever was behind the walls had moved away from him, and he could swear he heard a strange, almost inaudible laugh. Calvin pulled back the bookcase, almost expecting a hidden door, but he found a square black hole in the left bookcase instead. Inside was a map of a town with seven buildings and one marked with a steeple. The legend said, The worm that doth corrupt. Northwest of the village was an arrow that had the word Chapelwaite scribbled beneath it. Calvin tells Charles that someone in town had mentioned a deserted town named Jerusalem's Lot, a place the people of Preacher's Corner steers clear of. Calvin and Charles make plans to visit the deserted town the next day. When they arrive, it is indeed deserted. They visit a rotting tavern first. The boar's head in and tavern. It smells of rot and mold, something slimy, such a stench as might issue from corrupt coffins or violated tombs. While the tavern was empty and dusty, it doesn't look as though it had ever been touched. Nothing broken, nothing out of sorts. No vandalism from local boys of preacher's corners or clear signs of exploration. The only damage was done by nature. It's obvious that Jerusalem's lot was not just a deserted town. It was a shunned town. No one wants anything to do with it, despite the antiquities left behind. The other buildings they check, including two houses, have the same rotten stench of decay as the tavern. There are no insects, no birds, not even cobwebs in the corners. Just dust. They reach the church, which seems as ominous as Chapelwaite. Charles describes the church to Bones. It reared above us, grim, uninviting, cold. Its windows were black with the shadows inside, and any godliness or sanctity had departed from it long ago. Of that, I am certain. Inside the church is that same rotting smell. And Charles is aware that there are spiritually noxious places, 
buildings where the milk of the cosmos has become sour and rancid. This church is such a place. I would swear to it. Inside the vestibule is a dusty coat rack and shelved hymnals, all perfectly normal until they spot the painting described as a grotesque travesty of a Madonna and child with strange, half-shadowed creatures crawling in the background. In the glimmering half-light of the afternoon, the pews stretched ghost-like to the altar. Above them was a high oaken pulpit, and a shadow struck Narthex from which gold glimmered. With a half-sob, Calvin, that devout Protestant, made the holy sign, and I followed suit. For the gold was a large, beautifully wrought cross, but it was hung upside down, symbol of Satan's mass. At the pulpit, a huge book lay open, written in both Latin and in crabbed runes that appeared either Druidic or Celtic. The book's cover stamped with the words, Divermus Mysteris, the mysteries of the worm. When Charles touches it, he describes to Bones, It seemed that I heard low, chanting voices, full of hideous yet eager fear, and below that sound another filling the bowels of the earth. An hallucination, I doubt it not, but at the same moment, the church was filled with a very real sound, which I can only describe as a huge and macabre turning beneath my feet. The pulpit trembled beneath my fingers. The desecrated cross trembled on the wall. Needless to say, Calvin and Charles book it out of the church and don't slow down again until they're across the small river and back towards Chapelweight. On October 17th, Calvin writes to a catalog to buy a five-pound tin of ratsbane. Boone again writes to Bones on the 19th. The noises within Chapelweight have gotten worse and their wood had not been delivered. When Boone wandered into Preacher's Corners to ask Thompson about his delivery, Thompson's daughter recoils in terror, and Thompson threatens Boone with a squirrel rifle, cursing the man. Boone can tell that beneath Thompson's bluff and bluster, he's just as scared to see Boone as the young girl was. Thompson screams at Boone to never come back, throwing a rock at his back as he leaves. After the encounter, Boone visits Mrs. Cloris again to ask about Jerusalem's lot. Mrs. Cloris is shaken that the evil has come again. But she invites Boone inside and then tells him that he must leave Chapelweight immediately. There have been omens ever since Charles set foot in the house. A call over the face of the moon. Flocks of whippoorwills which roost in the cemeteries. An unnatural birth. Barbara Brown gave birth to a baby with no eyes. A man found a flat pressed trail five feet wide in the woods beyond Chapelweight, where all had withered and gone white. And it's here that we're told a little of the Boone family history. As Charles describes to Mrs. Cloris, he says the house has been the home of Philip Boone's line since the 1780s. His brother Robert, my grandfather, located in Massachusetts after an argument over stolen papers. Of Philip's side, I know little, except that an unhappy shadow fell over it, extending from father to son to grandchildren. Marcella died in a tragic accident and Stephen fell to his death. It was his wish that Chapelweight become the home of me and mine, and that the family rift thus be mended. But Mrs. Cloris says the rift will never be mended. The original quarrel was that Philip Boone was mad, a man who trafficked with the unholy. Robert Boone had attempted to retrieve a book Philip had in his possession, a profane Bible written in old tongues, a hell book. Charles knows, the Vermis Mysterious, he admits that he's seen it and touched it in the church in Jerusalem's lot. He asks what relation Philip had to Jerusalem's lot, and Mrs. Cloris says, a blood relation. The mark of the beast was on him, although he walked in the clothes of the lamb. And on the night of October 31st, 1789, Philip Boone disappeared, and the entire populace of that damned village with him. On October 20th, Calvin finds a book in an obscure corner of the library. It's all written in cipher, though Calvin feels like he can break it. It seems old, and he plans on telling Boone about it, but first, Boone wants to explore the cellar. This is where things seem to pick up a bit, considering what the two men find. In the subsequent letters, one to Bones, it is gibberish, as Boone cannot write properly. And then another from Calvin's journal, saying that he fears Boone's health has broken. Calvin laments on the horror that they found in the cellar as well, the things in the cellar that have haunted their walls. 
It's not until October 22nd that Boone can write Bones again to describe what happened. He writes, I have come face to face with an insanity and a horror beyond the limits of human expression, and the end is not yet. He and Calvin took candles downstairs, where it became quite clear that perhaps they didn't have rats living in the walls after all. The stairs were in a state of disrepair. In fact, it was the stairs where Stephen's sister Marcella had fallen to her death, leading her father to kill himself in the same cellar out of remorse. The floor was earthen, the walls made of granite. No signs of rats whatsoever. There were no nests. At the far end, the granite walls gave way to a polished wood, which seemed totally black and without reflective properties. Here, the cellar ended, leaving what seemed to be in a clove off the main chamber. It was positioned at an angle, which made inspection impossible without stepping around the corner. But Calvin and Charles did so. It was as if a rotten specter of this dwelling's sinister past had risen before us. A single chair stood in the clove, and above it, fastened from a hook in one of the stout overhead beams, was a decayed noose of hemp. It was there that Randolph Boone, Marcella and Stephen's father, hung himself, with the corpse of his daughter lying at the foot of the steps behind him. And it's at that moment that Boone describes how the wall swung back and how they got a good look at what was living within the walls. Boone's letter describes it like this. From that darkness, a face leered, a face with eyes as a bond as the sticks itself. Its mouth yawned in a toothless, agonized grin. One yellow, rotted hand stretched itself out to us. It made a hideous mewing sound and took a shambling step forward. The light from my candle fell upon it, and I saw the livid rope burn about its neck. From beyond it, something else moved, something I shall dream of until the day when all dreams cease. A girl with a pallid, moldering face and a corpse grin. A girl whose head lolled at a lunatic angle. Boone threw his candle at the bodies and then the chair, and it's after that that it became confused darkness for him. He woke up in his room with Calvin by his side. He tells Bones, If I could leave, I should fly from this house of horror with my nightdress flapping at my heels, but I cannot. I have become a pawn in a deeper, darker drama. Do not ask how I know. I only do. Mrs. Cloris was right when she spoke of blood calling to blood, and how horribly right when she spoke of those who watch and those who guard. I fear that I have wakened a force which has slept in the timorous village of Salem's lot for half a century, a force which has slain my ancestors and taken them in unholy bondage as Nosferatu, the undead. And I have greater fears than these bones, but I still see only in part, if I knew... If I only knew all. Calvin's journal writes of Boone's health and how they both agreed that what they saw was not a hallucination or of ghostly origin. They were real. Calvin suspects they've gone. There has been no more noise, but it still feels ominous to him. Calvin reveals he found some papers in an upstairs bedroom that he suspects belonged to Robert Boone, along with a coded message Calvin was able to decipher. He believes it's the same code he found in the book in the library, and he begins work on deciphering it. On October 24th, Boone writes to Bones again about the diary that Calvin found belonging to Boone's grandfather, Robert Boone. This book gives a lot of insight into the history of Chapelweight, of Jerusalem's lot, and what happened to his brother Philip. It describes a deepening obsession and madness. Jerusalem's lot predates Chapelweight, which was built in 1782, and Preacher's Corners, known at first as Preacher's Rest. Jerusalem's lot was founded in 1710 by a splinter group of the Puritan faith, headed by a religious fanatic named James Boone, with obvious relation to the Boone family. Mrs. Cloris had been right when she said that Philip Boone's relation to the town was blood, and that the diary all but confirms that. James Boone preached and held court in Jerusalem's lot, convincing the women that this was God's will as he held commerce with them. The town soon became a community of inbreeding, where rites of exorcism were held regularly. The insanity and physical defects that accompany inbreeding were prevalent. One of Boone's bastard offspring must have been able to leave Jerusalem's lot and sought his fortune down south. Thus, he created his own lineage, which led to Robert and Philip, Stephen and Charles. Charles's great-grandfather, Kenneth Boone, is suspected to be this offspring of James Boone's. It was Kenneth's fortune that led to the building of Chapelweight, 
1782 by his sons Robert and Philip. James Boone continued to live till 1789, making him 104, which is an unusually long life. The letters include diary entries from Robert Boone describing his appalled reaction to the community within Jerusalem's lot, the familiar faces indicating incest. The people were lackluster, sucked of all vitality. Children without noses or eyes, women who wept and murmured gibberish, talking of scripture and demons. Philip wanted to stay for church services, but Robert made an excuse not to join him. The entries continue to describe Philip's growing obsession with James Boone and Jerusalem's lot, his descent into madness. Philip asked Robert to write to his contacts in order to acquire a book called Mysteries of the Worm. Robert agrees and writes to a friend named Henry in Boston, who replies that there are only five copies in the country, and Robert notes that the letter is quite cold, which is odd as he and Henry had been friends for years. Philip and James are very anxious to get a copy of the mentioned book, although they won't say why. Robert doesn't seem to understand what the book is about, but he is worried about his brother Philip. He seems unsure as to whether or not he should help Philip acquire the book, but he promises to help his brother get a copy if Philip will recant his baptism in James's offensive church. Philip promises, but Robert does not trust him to follow through. On September 16, 1789, the book arrives with a letter from Henry that he no longer wishes more of Robert's trade. Philip takes the book, but when Robert reminds him of his promise to recant his baptism, Philip only laughs and flees. The town of Preacher's Corners begins to see omens in 1789, just as they do in present day. Philip's hair has gone gray, his eyes bloodshot with insanity. When he's not in Jerusalem's lot, he is haunting the cellar of Chapelweight. One evening, October 27th, Robert follows Philip to Jerusalem's lot, but he does not cross the bridge into town. He can see the church from where he is. He describes it litten with a ghastly red glare that seemed to transform the high-peaked windows into the eyes of the inferno. Voices rose and fell in a devil's litany, sometimes laughing, sometimes sobbing. The very ground seemed to swell and groan beneath me as if it bore an awful weight, and I fled, amazed and full of terror. Robert continues to write, and yet I feel the urge to go again, to watch, to see. It seems that Philip himself calls to me, and the old man. The birds cursed, cursed, cursed. And the diary ends. Boone's letter to Bone ends with this. Yet you must notice Bones near the conclusion that he claims Philip himself seemed to call him. My final conclusion is formed by these lines, by the talk of Mrs. Cloris and the others, but most of all by those terrifying figures in the cellar, dead yet alive. Our line is yet an unfortunate one, Bones. There is a curse over us which refuses to be buried. It lives a hideous shadow life in this house and that town, and the culmination of the cycle is drawing close again. I am the last of the Boone blood. I fear that something knows this and that I am at the nexus of an evil endeavor beyond all sane understanding. The anniversary is All Saints' Eve one week from today. How shall I proceed? If only you were here to counsel me, to help me. If only you were here. I must know all. I must return to the shunned town. May God support me. Calvin is clearly still concerned for Charles's health. The noises have begun in the walls again, and he is aware that Charles plans to return to Jerusalem's lot. Calvin sneaks sleeping powder into Charles's tea to keep him asleep and well, while Calvin takes a buggy into town for help. But the people of Preacher's Corners throw stones at him until he is forced to return to Chapelwaite alone. Charles seems intent on going to Jerusalem's lot, and Calvin decides that he will go with him, despite Charles's attempt to get Calvin out of town so he can go alone. October 27th is the last entry in Calvin's journal. It's not until November 4th that there's another letter written, and we find out what happened in Jerusalem's lot. The two men had gone back to the town and into the church. The main chamber was in shambles, the pews overturned and heaped. The upside-down cross had been thrown against the wall, a hole made in the plaster. Oil lamps ripped from high fixtures, and there was a terrible smell. Down the center aisle was a trail of blood up to the pulpit where the butchered body of a lamb watched them. 
The lamb had not been torn or eaten. It appeared, rather, to have been squeezed until its blood vessels had forcibly ruptured. Blood lay in thick and noisome puddles on the lectern itself and about the base of it. Yet on the book, it was transparent, and the crabbed runes could be read through it, as through colored glass. Charles plans on destroying the book. They moved the lamb from the pulpit, and both men began to hear low chanting. They felt the floor trembling beneath them. A blind, interbred congregation, they could see swaying in mindless, demonic praise, deformed faces filled with hungering, nameless anticipation. The pulpit itself splits, and Calvin tells Charles to run, but some kind of ancient vessel enters Charles, and Charles takes the book, speaking in tongues, calling forth the evil. Calvin pushes Charles to clear his head, and the pulpit explodes, Charles lights a sulfuric match to light the book on fire. And then there was a huge surge of gray, vibrating flesh. The smell became a nightmare tide. It was a huge outpouring of viscid, pustulant jelly, a huge and awful form that seemed to skyrocket from the very bowels of the ground. And yet, with a sudden horrible comprehension, which no man can have known, I have perceived that it was but one ring, one segment, of a monster worm that had existed eyeless for years in the chambered darkness beneath that abominated church. Calvin is flung the length of the church where he breaks his neck and is killed. And then the thing subsides, leaving a huge shattered hole surrounded in black slime, a screaming sound that faded and was soon gone, just like the book, which was now on the ground in ashes. Boone describes this to Bones. All sanity left me and I sat on the floor, with blood streaming from my temple, screaming and gibbering into those unhallowed shadows while Calvin sprawled in the far corner, staring at me with glazing, horror-struck eyes. From the shattered hole in the ground, a figure begins to pull itself up from the darkness, a half-skull peering up at Charles, beetles crawling all over the skinless forehead, red insane pits for eyes watching Charles with more than lunacy. They glared with the empty life of the pathless wastes beyond the edges of the universe. It was James Boone, keeper of the worm, to drag Charles down into the darkness with him. That's when Charles fled, leaving the body of his friend behind. Charles writes to Bones that James Boone still lives somewhere in the twisted, lightless wanderings beneath Jerusalem's lot. Chapelweight and it lives. The burning of the book thwarted it, but there are other copies. Charles realizes that he is the gateway, and the last of the boon blood, he knows he must die to break the chain forever. He explains his intent to kill himself at sea, and he writes, My journey, like my story, is at an end. May God rest you and grant you all peace, Charles. That is the end of Charles's correspondence. Bones, also known as Everett Granson, eventually receives the letters, it's thought that Charles's brain fever, which struck him after the death of his wife, Sarah, caused Charles to lose his mind and murder his companion, Calvin McCann. It's also believed that Calvin's own journal entries are forgeries perpetrated by Charles Boone in order to reinforce his own paranoid delusions. Here we learn Charles was wrong about a few things in his letters. There was no real damage to the Jerusalem's Lot Church. No explosion had occurred. The pews were overturned, yes, and windows shattered, but they believe it to be the work of vandals from neighboring towns. In this editorial, it's written that among the older residents of Preacher's Corners in Tandrell, there is some idle rumor about Jerusalem's lot. Perhaps in his day, it was kind of harmless folk legend, which started Charles's Boone's mind on his fatal course, but this hardly seems relevant. It's also noted that Charles Boone was not the last of the Boone bloodline. His grandfather, Robert Boone, had two bastards. One died in infancy. The other took the Boone name and located in the town of Central Falls, Rhode Island. This man had family of his own, and so on and so on, eventually leading to the final descendant of the Boone bloodline, James Robert Boone, Charles's second cousin removed by three generations. James writes, These papers have been in my committal for ten years. I offer them for publication on the occasion of my residence in the Boone Ancestral Home Chapelweight, in the hope that the reader will find sympathy in his heart for Charles Boone's poor, misguided soul. So far as I can tell, he was correct about only one thing. 
This place badly needs services of an exterminator. There are some huge rats in the walls by the sound. The correspondence is dated October 2nd, 1971, the same date as Charles Boone's first letter to Bones, 121 years apart. And that is Jerusalem's Lot. I know I enjoyed the short story the first time. I don't think that I read this one. I listened to it on audio. So I think there was maybe it was a little hard to keep up. I think using Boone, Bones, Charles, Calvin, (laughs) it got kind of confusing. And if I said the wrong name at some point during my summary, I apologize. There's a lot of similar names. It's easy to get Bone, Bone, see, Bones and Boone mixed up. Um, But I really did enjoy this one, rereading it again with some more analytical eyes. It really made me appreciate what King was able to create here. Chapel Waite reminds me a lot of the Marston House, as both are essentially major characters in their own stories. King takes a lot of pains to describe both houses to make sure that they have kind of a life of their own, which I think he does a really good job of. I mean, there are 23 rooms with a portrait gallery of Boone's ancestors. You know, inside the walls, he can hear the rats scurrying around. Really big rats, apparently, as it sounds like people walking behind the walls. Mrs. Cloris even gives a little bit of insight into the house, how it's a bad house. She describes how it was built and lived in with unhappiness. This house makes the town people nervous. To them, it's evil. It has a reputation. And obviously, we find out a little bit more as we read. But I think the most foreboding aspect of the house was Boone's description of the rats. Obviously, the large rats, almost like people, like I said, They've seen no sign of rats to confirm, no holes, no droppings in the cellar. There's no nests, which to me, I think this is kind of interesting going from the story next into Graveyard Shift, which is full of rats. (laughs) But as I was reading the story and then doing some research on it, I really had no idea that The Mysteries of the Worm was, it was not a real book, but it's a book that was created by another author, Robert Block. Block was the author of several books, most notably Psycho, which was soon made into a movie by Alfred Hitchcock. And the first appearance of The Mysteries of the Worm appeared in a 1935 short story by Block called The Secret in the Tomb. The Mysteries of the Worm was written by a fictional Ludwig Prynne. Prynne was an alchemist, a necromancer, and a mage who boasted of, quote, having attained a miraculous age before he was burned at the stake. H.P. Lovecraft also used De Vermis Mysterious in several of his stories. Prynne and De Vermis Mysterious also mentioned in other various writings and stories. So King is not the first one to take this, this book and create a story around it. King also, I guess, implies in Salem's Lot that Mark and Susan found this book. In a passage, Mark finds a book in the Marston house and asks Susan to translate it for him. She doesn't know what it says, but she says it's in Latin, possibly referencing the book's title. It's been quite some time since I've read Salem's Lot, so I kind of want to go back and search for that just to see if it is indeed the same book. And Charles Charles Boone had set fire to the book at the end of this story, but it's also mentioned that there were five copies in the country, so obviously it can make sense that they got another. Or perhaps the book miraculously healed itself. It seems as though if the church could heal itself— to the point where, you know, Boone's descendant said that there had never been any explosion in the church. There was only minor vandalism. It is possible that the church healed itself as the book did. I just don't know. It seems as though King took a lot of inspiration uh, from these various stories, most notably Lovecraft's The Rat in the Walls. I have not read The Rats but um, the Rats in the Walls, but after this, I think I might put it on my to-be-read list to try to read this year. Admittedly, I've never read any Lovecraft, but I do know a lot of people who are fans of his work, so I'm kind of eager to jump in and see how that inspired King's writing. Since I've never read any Lovecraft, I'm not really sure if King was attempting to emulate Lovecraft in his writing style in the story or not. Maybe he does craft, I mean, he does craft a very atmospheric story, and I love the ending, the letter, the editorial of James Robert Boone. So was Charles really crazy? Was Calvin attempting to keep him healthy and sane, but Charles's delusions got the better of him? King does add in Calvin's journal entries, which do mention 
um, Charles's health and Calvin's worry for him. But it also mentions some of the things that he experienced with Charles, which then James Robert Boone later says they were forgery. They had been forged. So it's, it's kind of ambiguous. Did Boone murder Calvin? Or was his illness simply a scapegoat, an easy explanation of what had happened to Calvin and Charles in Chapelweight? Chapelweight obviously led to a lot of tragedy and death, and Charles and Calvin simply became its next victims. Charles was used to bring forth the worm, <laughs> but he did manage to destroy the book that James Boone had procured and used it, you know, Boone had used this book to cover Jerusalem's lot in evil. Obviously, I believe Calvin and Charles's accounts of what happened in those weeks leading up to their deaths really did happen. But there's definitely a debate to be had about whether or not Charles was truly mad or if these things really happened. Considering the story, it's only told through letters and journal entries. So I think King did a great job at creating depth in these characters, even with Mrs. Cloris. I mean, even with Bones, we never hear from him, but we feel like we know him <laughs> as well as Charles did by the end of these letters to him. The buildup from Charles marveling at his new home to the discovery of the rats in the walls to hearing about Jerusalem's lot in the apprehension and outright belligerent nature of the townspeople from Preacher's Corners, it just felt like really effective storytelling. The sequence in the cellar was really creepy uh, I think that was my favorite part other than the very end. And I could really imagine this whole sequence in my head. And I know that they are making, I think, an eight-episode series based on Jerusalem's Lot that they're, they've titled Chapelweight. But from what I can tell, they're changing quite a bit of it. And I think it would be awesome if they included the cellar sequence, but I'm not going to hold my breath that they're even going to uh, go there, <laughs> unfortunately. One other thing I noted, when Charles sees, sees the undead Randolph and Marcella, he recognizes them as the undead Nosferatu. So are they vampires? Are they the Salem Slot vampires? After looking into it a little bit, Nosferatu, yes, can mean vampire, but it can be derived from the word uh, Nosferitu, which means the insufferable, repugnant one, unclean spirit. So I don't know that it necessarily means vampire in this particular instance, but considering Jerusalem's lot soon hosts a whole lot of vampires, <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of, I really want to know how that history continues into Salem's lot. What happened in between Chapelweight and Salem's lot? That's what I'm really curious about. Um, and of course, if I reread Salem's lot, I might get a little bit more history into it. It'll trigger those memories. And of course, we do have another short story uh, regarding Jerusalem's lot later in Night Shift, which will also give us a little bit more insight into the town because it takes place after Salem's lot, the events of Salem's lot. So that is my thought on the, the story. I thought it was really good. I thought it was a great way to open Night Shift. It is one of the longer stories, I believe, in the book. But it was very effective. I love the the storytelling through letters and journal entries, obviously very much like Dracula. And I think if, I'm going to probably rate these short stories at the end of every episode out of five. And I'm going to give this one five out of five just because I think it was an excellent way to hook a reader to want to continue reading these short stories. Um, I'm not usually a huge fan of reading I guess the language of the 1700s. <laughs> I'm sure I tripped over some of the words and everything that Charles used in his letters. But other than that, I just thought the characters were really well developed. I thought I could picture Chapelweight quite clearly in my head. Jerusalem's lot was creepy. Its history was creepy. I love the church sequences. So I just think that it's really impressive that he apparently wrote this for a college course in 1967. I don't, this is really advanced. This is great storytelling. And his writing style has only improved since then. So that should really tell you something about King's talent. Um, so I really just want to know more about Chapelweight. I want to know more about Charles's history, the boons. Like, I feel like this could be a whole universe, which, you know, the King Dominion, the King universe is out there. But just this particular family is so fascinating for me. And I really want to know more. So that's my review of Jerusalem's Lot, you guys. I would love to know what you think of this story, where it ranks in your 
listing of your favorite King stories, short stories, of course, because we're focusing on that now. So um, if you have anything you want to add or let me know, we can talk about it. Just email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And I hope you guys stick around. I'm hoping to have a new episode for you, at least by Monday, to go over blank page from the stand. And if you are enjoying this podcast and you want to leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts, that would be so amazing. Thank you to everyone who's already done so. You guys are amazing. I appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope that you guys have a really nice beginning to the year of 2021. (laughs) Say goodbye to 2020. I'm hoping never to have to think about it again. But here's hoping that 2021 is a better one for all of us and that we really enjoy ourselves going through this journey through Stephen King's short stories and novellas. So thank you so much for joining me in this episode. Um, And I guess that's it. And I'm going to keep saying this because I don't know how to end an episode without saying it. M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week.